Welcome to 616 Presents. Today's show is all about design. I'm Fernando Ramirez and I'm sitting here with Phil Renato. So Phil, why don't you tell us what you do? Sure. I'm the chair of the Metals and Jewelry Design Program at Kendall College of Art and Design, where I have been teaching for about 16 years. I also teach within the Industrial Design Program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I took, a, I took a class from you, mm-hmm. um, learning how to 3D print, learning how to build in Rhino, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, well, Phil, Phil is more than an educator, though. You're, um, you're a designer. I mean, you're mm-hmm. a, a maker. Uh, you're an artist. I mean, I always think your, your work always bridges on all three. So, um, yeah, in your words, what do you do? Sure. I, I mean, I do lots of things. The primary thing I do in terms of, um, you know, the professional distinction would be I'm a professor. I teach, you know, so that's the primary thing that I do. Uh, what I was trained to do is a little bit different, which is to say my undergraduate degree is in painting and in metals and jewelry design, or actually what was called metalsmithing. My MFA is in um, metal design, it's called. Uh, but I have a background in design generally. I went to a vocational high school for advertising design. I started as a graphic design major in college. I went through a bunch of different things. So I have a fair amount of experience. I was a web designer in the late 90s when that was a thing you could do um, without tons of experience. I have a lot of um, kind of print design production experience. And I make jewelry-like things, mm-hmm. and I think about jewelry-related things, the materials, the processes, the objects, the meaning of the objects on the body, how culture uses something like these symbols that we wear to differentiate ourselves. Yeah, and you can see that in, in a lot of your work. It's, um, I, I think what's really interesting about it, maybe you could talk a little about it, is how you, your work, it, it, it does bridge that gap of art and design and, and mm-hmm. even a, a craft. I mean, mm-hmm. so, like, uh, how, how do you think... How does your process lead you there or what, what does that mean? How does sure. that become your soup? Yeah, I think so. There's so many ways to think about what each of those things um, are. Let's take one frame on it, which is to say when I think of fine art, what I typically think of is the communication of some message that is of primary interest to the person making the object that may be of secondary interest to the person receiving or viewing the object, right? Mm-hmm. But it's all based on the maker's preferences or mm-hmm. um, in- interests. When I think of design, I think of the exact opposite. The person is who is making the thing or designing the thing is trying to be empathetic and think primarily of the user, the receiver of the object. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, anyway, take themselves out of that practice. Absolutely. As you can kind of imagine, craft has a little bit of that same tradition, which isn't exactly where I come from. Neither mm-hmm. of the schools I went to had a crafts discipline per se, but they had some craft ethic, which is to yeah. say how to make a thing, right? Mm-hmm. But craft has both design components and fine art components, right? So um, I think I'm getting lost there, except to say that it's a little bit complicated, but I would say there's some aspect of each of those three things. Mm-hmm. If I had to choose one of them, I think I would choose design, even though I don't design things for production. And I'm fairly different than an industrial designer um, in that I don't think first of a client. I don't think mm-hmm. first of a need. I think first of a form. Okay. And then often I'm trying to assign or, or recognize a need that that form can fill. So, so would you say that is the the art approach then do you say that's the yeah. artist in you coming out first it's also the 
crafts in me, which is to say, I know how to do certain things, Mm -hmm. or I'm interested in learning how to do certain things. So if I have a material and a process, or if I want to learn a piece of software and a, a workflow, the natural thing for me is to think about those things first, how to make a thing and what direction I've been headed in my head Mm -hmm. and with my previous work. And then as I go forward, continue to recognize um, new sites or new um, manifestations or form factors that those might go into. Jewelry, I just want to say real quick, jewelry is a unique form in that it's not functional. It often gets grouped in with something like furniture Mm -hmm. or with ceramics as a functional art, but in no way is it functional outside of the same function that a painting or a photograph has, which is to say, to provoke an, an experience in the user. But jewelry can't help you open a can. You, yeah, can't, right. you can't drive with it. Uh, it doesn't have the same functional constraints. So it's primarily ornamental. Its function is as a communication object. And that is kind of different. So it's, you That's know, th- it's approach, my approach might stem as much from that as anything else. Well, how about your, when you get to a refinement? I guess, mm-hmm. I guess we could walk through your process, but sure. also, I mean, do, do you think when it comes to refinement, it starts to switch over to the more design heavy rather than the art? Yeah. So if I think about the design aspects of what I do, it's it's the relatively rigorous process of thinking through and ideating through and revising and recur, you know, recursing through mm-hmm. um, a bunch of different possibilities from which I'm going to choose one that seems to me to be optimal or that I've recognized or that clients have told me is some optimal you know, way to approach this, mm-hmm. this combination of variables, something like that. Well, I know, I know in the, me and you had a talk and you said a lot of it isn't client work. It's, it's pure sure. exploration, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. It's speculative. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, at what point, like, I guess as a designer for me, mm-hmm. it's always about this big refinement. I mean, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm more traditional in how I mm-hmm. work process wise, but so how do you work when you have a client? Well, I don't have clients very often. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I do occasionally sell some work, and I occasionally do work for clients. But you know, ninety percent of the creative work that I do is not only speculative; it's uh, private. You know, mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes, I um, submit to exhibitions. I submit to you know books. It's academic in that way, which mm-hmm. is to say, I don't think of myself as somebody who really loves the idea of art for art's sake, but that's kind of what I do. I, I work through, let's say a bunch of ideas about how to design a bracelet and then make a bracelet. And then the primary outcome of that for me is then I have a new way of doing it that I can show my students. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I force them to learn it, right? It's now, this is the workflow that Phil's going to show you. But many times it's something I just reserve for the point at which a student shows me something where something I've learned in a previous iteration will be of use to them. You know, let's say Rhino, which is something I teach a lot of 3D modeling, you know, 90% of what I know about Rhino, I don't use, right? I use Mm -hmm. some tiny percentage of Rhino because that's what applies to my work generally. But I have to explore other things because my students need to know some giant number of, you know, variations that are greater than what I would use if I was left just to, you know, making some um, trajectory of work that Mm -hmm. was similar to what I made when I came out of graduate school. Mm -hmm. No, that's really interesting. It's so different. I I thought that's why you'd be a really great guy to sit down with because that perspective 
so different where you where you come from and how you mm-hmm. combine those that you know those three points art design and, and craft so um yeah not, not to shift too much but what, what got you into design sure so i had a lot of trouble as a kid with school especially um, with lots of things but especially with school and even coming close to succeeding or excelling. The one area where I never had trouble was in art classes and writing classes. So anything creative in nature, I tended to care enough about to put some time into. So really one of the reasons that I ended up in art was that was the thing that I was good at. And I think that's true for a lot of us, right? Mm-hmm. Some students you know, who end up going into the arts had an infinite number of possibilities. They could have gone in physics just as well as art. Mm-hmm. I have a former student who was offered a full scholarship nearly at Kendall for jewelry and offered a similarly high scholarship for music at some school mm-hmm. in Detroit. Right, right. So, you know, I didn't have those multiple options exactly. Um, so one reason is um, I didn't do well at the subjects that might have given me more possibilities, to be <laughs> honest. So that's one answer to it. Um, I went, how I ended up in kind of design rather than pure fine art is the most rigorous art course you could take when I was in high school was a three hour a day vocational training program in advertising design. And it was super hard ass. Gray marker, Prismacolor, photorealistic rendering. This is before the Macintosh was something Mm. we had in our high school, right? So we were doing it all by hand, all with letra set, all manually, and it was just knuckle busting tremendous amounts of work. Your homework assignment every single weekend was to do a five-hour drawing, like an extra, in addition to the coursework you're doing, you had to do a five-hour rendering-style drawing of a subject of my teacher's you know, choosing. Mm-hmm. So when I got to college, graphic design seemed fairly natural because mm-hmm. that was advertising design and graphic design are similar things, although not exactly yeah. the same. And it turned out they were sufficiently different that it was interesting to me for a while to be in graphic design. But of course, one of the big problems with being in graphic design, back to this difference between the way I approach design and how a normal designer would approach design is, I don't want to work for Mm Coca-Cola at all, or McDonald's, or any of these large companies that I either just don't care about or have some sort of ethical or moral problem with, which I realize is probably lots of people wouldn't necessarily work for Hustler if you don't like porn, let's say, right? (laughs) But for me, it's almost everything, right? Like I really don't want to try to sell anything, right? Mm -hmm. So then coming back out of graphic design after English for a while, painting is really the fundamental thing when you think about fine art, right? Or art Mm -hmm. in general. If you tell somebody you are an artist, they're going to assume you are a painter or a sculptor, Mm -hmm. but usually first a painter. And I'm fairly good at drawing, and so I did a lot of painting. The problem I had with my painting course that takes me back to where I ended up is it's the opposite of graphic design. In graphic design or in in advertising design, you are arranging, you know, this is the Eames thing, right? Arranging elements to accomplish a particular purpose, right? And that purpose is to sell a thing or to uh, build a brand, to Mm. make some sort of awareness. In painting, where I went to school, at the time I went to school, it really seemed like it was anything you wanted it to be. You walked into a classroom, the teacher said some words that you barely understood, and for the next five weeks, you'd do whatever the hell you wanted, including the the straw that broke me on that, that I finally stopped taking classes, even though I ended up with the major, is somebody glued a bunch of blank CDs to a canvas, 
and presented it as their final project. And like, <laughs> we've at, all seen that. <laughs> at no point was there rigor in that process, right? The, the critique was horrible. So whereas in jewelry, it was a very different thing. So I should back up in a little bit and say, I, I worked as an apprentice or as a, as a co-op student, my senior year of high school for mm -hmm. a jeweler two hours a day for reasons I don't want to go into right now. But anyway, so I had a little bit of this experience with goldsmithing. So I took the class when I was in college, largely because I thought it'd be easy. I'm like, oh, I'll take this course. I already know how to do this thing yeah. and I'll be able to do it. And it turns out it was a total pain in the ass class. I didn't even <laughs> do well enough. I think I got a C plus or something, or a B minus. And it was hard because at least at that moment, my teacher didn't let me get away with shit, right? Mm. It wasn't anything you could throw at a canvas. It was the exact opposite. It was, here is a set of techniques that have parameters that I want you to control. And I want you to execute something that is original, but that's original within a set of constraints mm. that are predefined. And at that moment, I needed that discipline, right? Having been somebody who was not a good student out of high school, and I did pretty well in college, but I still needed to continue building discipline. Jewelry was a place that when we had a conversation, we could talk about good and bad, and it wasn't entirely subjective. There was an amount of objectivity to it, right? Mm -hmm. If we had had industrial design, I might have gone into that for various reasons, but um, but jewelry was about the closest I could get to where there was this, um, there was a um, there was a formal component, there was a craft or making component, and there was an intellectual component, right? How what something means, why you arrange them in that way, what message are you trying to convey? Well, and that was that that point um i'm not going to give away your age but sure. at that point i mean that's when body jewelry was kind of okay. getting into it yeah, so yeah. were you i mean you have plugs so yeah, yeah. did i not tell you the story already <laughs> no no <laughs> okay. i don't right. no, so, remember i said the primary reason i took jewelry was because i thought it would be easy because i had this experience in high school mm -hmm. the secondary reason i made jewelry i made took the jewelry class was to get access to a buffing machine and i wanted access to a buffing machine because I was just starting to do body piercing and I wanted to make my own body jewelry. <laughs> so my first, um, I guess, design and, entrepreneur, and entrepreneurial project was a company called Generic Jewelry that I ran for about three years when I was in oh, college. Wow. I probably made about 10,000 um, what are called captive bead rings and other pieces of jewelry, including mm -hmm. barbells and things like that. So I was a body piercer, even for half a second, a tattoo artist. Um, <laughs> and making the jewelry was a big, a big part of it. It was, you know, partially about being creative, although my work was not, was not terribly creative, mm -hmm. but it was partially about if I made it myself, I could save a lot of money, right? Or make mm -hmm. more money out of what I was doing. Also, I wouldn't have to wait for something. So at the time, just a, for instance, like a 14 gauge captive bead ring that somebody would put through their, through their septum, the middle mm -hmm. of their nose, that ran wholesale around six or $8 oh, wow. and around 18 or 20 bucks by the time you tried to buy it from a piercer, sometimes more depending on the piercer. Material wise, I could buy that amount of stainless steel for about a penny, maybe three oh, pennies, wow. something like that. Now there's a fair amount of labor in it and there's mm -hmm. a fair amount of equipment that you had to have access to, hence mm -hmm. me taking that jewelry course. So even though I didn't do well in the course, <laughs> it was very much worth the cheap Eastern Michigan University tuition to have taken it because yeah. I got access to all this gear that allowed me to process product. Wait, so how, how would you sell all this jewelry? Sure. Like how great, did you start question. that? Yeah, number of ways. So I was a part of a, of a subculture uh, that used to be called anyway, straight edge hardcore. So yeah. hardcore music. So I lived at a house in Hamtramck, Michigan, and people would come to the house because bands would play in our basement for like 
super cheap, literally for cans of soup sometimes. <laughs> like we would say, you know, you, you donate three cans of soup and you get in for a buck or something like that. It was this really interesting little subculture. And I had the entire attic. And the first thing I had to do when moving the house was clean the hell out of this attic that hadn't been touched for 50 years or something. And then I laid down um, linoleum and built a piercing studio up there. So the primary way that I sold it, at least in the beginning, was I put it in people's body through a needle, right? <laughs> Is I would, you know, I'd, I'd open people up and put this jewelry right in them. That's such At, an elegant way of yeah, right? Yeah, 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 very sexy. Um, but after a while, uh, I was able to start a little bit of mail order. So there are a bunch of fanzines within the straight edge hardcore mm -hmm. world. I'd pay some nominal amount of money or trade a little bit of jewelry in order to get an ad in a fanzine. People would literally put folded up bills in an envelope and send them to my house along with what they wanted. And I would hopefully within a reasonable amount of time, either make or just pull out of inventory that amount of work and send it back into the mail to them. You know, no, no certified mail, no anything. This is before eBay. Mm -hmm. I had a few stores. In fact, I had probably half a dozen, you know, maybe, maybe more um, stores selling the work. And then I would travel with a few of my friends' bands or just when I went to travel to go see bands in other states. And even when they were playing locally, kind of like what are called merch tables, right? Mm -hmm. You know, where the band sets up their merch. Mm -hmm. There's lots of what are called distros in Straight Edge Hardcore back then, where um, a person would buy, let's say, five each of you know, 20 different bands, um, seven inches or CDs mm -hmm. or whatever, and they would sell them, right? I would do the same thing with my own jewelry, right? Oh. I would have this giant tackle box looking thing <laughs> with like 50 compartments and I would sell work wholesale at a retail level, right? Yeah. You know, which pissed yeah. people off who were selling at retail, but you know, it was a way that I was able to hook people up and, you know, make a little bit of money. So you were so. slanging jewelry. I was slanging, right. I was a pusher. I was you were pusher, a pusher, for sure. jewelry. You know, and, and all that stuff ended, I don't know if you're interested in this story, but all that stuff ended because after a while, I would get people knocking on my door. I, I ended up moving and I was in a different place, but I didn't get people knocking at my door like 1 a.m. wanting to be pierced while drunk. And for various reasons, that's just not happening. Yeah. I ended up, you know, then stopping doing it on my own, working in a big tattoo and piercing parlor in Ann Arbor, which was really cool for a while. Mm. But then after a while, I realized, you know, it wasn't that much money and there were too many risks associated <laughs> with it. So I kind of pulled out as I got more serious about my artwork. So, wow, that's crazy. Yeah. yeah see, I, I knew a little bit of the story, yeah, right. so I didn't know. Yeah, all. Yeah, that's yeah. really crazy that you. Oh, yeah. And it goes way deeper and crazier I'm than sure. that. But that's, that's, the, sure that's the, the, the top edge of it. Yeah. So, uh, so and that, like I said before, that was at a time where that if that that wasn't readily available like yeah this would have been it would have started in 1994 yeah. fall of 94 uh, spring of 94 is when i took my first jewelry class mm -hmm. so right around then is when i started making stuff yeah yeah mm -hmm. so you were you were kind of like a a guy bringing that culture up too, probably over there. Yeah. I mean, I definitely wasn't an originator, you know, mm -hmm. that stuff really started in the seventies and then eighties, yeah. but you know, by the early nineties, it had gotten popular enough that, you know, I knew about it and there mm -hmm. were even like magazines that talked about it and stuff, but yeah. it was certainly before it went absolutely crazy. Wow. And that was one of the, another reason I got away from it is, you know, people started putting beer cans through their ear. You know, they started yeah. opening up their body so much mm -hmm. that you started to wonder not just the, can they get a job, but is this, safe, you know, for their health. And of course, when you're a part of a, you know, something that can sometimes deviate <laughs> into something you're personally uncomfortable with, you know, it's hard to say no to people and yet you kind of have to. So it was easier to just walk away from it after yeah. a while. So oh, that's yeah. cool. That's great to know about. It's pretty fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as an educator or, mm -hmm. or as a designer, mm -hmm. 
Is there a certain kind of legacy you want to leave behind? Or, you know, a lot of designers, we, we create products saying like, or even architecture, that's a really good one. Like, you know, we're going to create this so it, it ripples. Mm-hmm. So it's here forever. It has a presence in, in the community. So as an artist, designer, educator, what, what do you want to leave behind? Well, first, hopefully I'm not too close to the end. I'm approximately halfway through my career, right? I've been mm-hmm. teaching for 16 years. Mm-hmm. I graduated 19 years ago now. So I'm approximately halfway through my career. And I would say in general, when I think about what I want to have done or what I am doing, it is provoking in students some amount or helping them build some amount of momentum that they're going to end up changing things, hopefully not just by being teachers. I don't want this to be like a Ponzi scheme, right? (laughs) And so um, hopefully they are going to go out and work for businesses and bring new ideas to them and then start their own businesses, work, make independent things and work with galleries. They're going to have all kinds of experiences that are at the very minimum going to change my field. Mm-hmm. In general, one, another one of the many differences between my field and my approach to things is in general, I don't think about jewelry designers as being leaders of culture per se, which is to say they are not, when I think about some of the students at Kendall, especially industrial, a little bit of illustration, I mean, of uh, interiors and co- especially collaborative design, those guys all think they're going to, they could use their skills to change the entire world. You know, mm-hmm. one city or one giant, huge, um, wicked problem at a time kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I think that's amazing. I definitely don't think about things that way. Mm-hmm. My bench is 40 inches wide and about 20 inches deep. <laughs> When we are working on our work, not necessarily mine, but you know, when, when mm-hmm. the, the people who train me are working on our work, we're, our, our noses are a few inches from the work, right? So we are definitely looking at like the bark level of the tree, not even the whole tree and certainly not the whole forest, right? Yeah. Now there's various types of us and there's various students that I'm working with who aren't always the same, right? There's lots of different ways of looking at things, but I don't think about, I, I would love to imagine that the work I'm doing and the work my students are going to do is going to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. I don't think I have a macro, you know, kind of um, scale on how we would ever make that happen, right? And I certainly don't have that as an agenda per se. Yeah, I could, I could see that, but I could also see, as designers, I mean, just materiality. I mean, that sure. changes things. I mean, okay, you're you're a vegan. Yeah, sure. Right. So, well, no yeah, leather on your jewelry. Yeah, pers- so personally, I have all kinds of. Um, uh, ethical and moral beliefs, right? Mm-hmm. And that certainly constrain and or help the work that I'm doing. But again, since a lot of my work isn't something that uh, is getting the amount of attention I would love that you know to get or affecting mm-hmm. the number of people I would love to affect, I don't think it's necessarily having that. But sure, I don't, I, I think that even small kindness, right, can have mm-hmm. an important effect on the yeah. world. So it's not that I think it has none. It's that I don't think we have a lot of pretensions of oh, grandeur. The, the kind bigger, of, I, okay. I don't think that when, when I think about designing a piece of jewelry, even an earth-shatteringly amazing, when I think about my favorite people in my field or even the extensions of the field, I don't think about people who are necessarily transformed forming big picture things in the way that I think of even physicists doing or something. Right. Yeah. So, um, absolutely. I could see that. Yeah. So how how have you, how have students changed over the 16 years? In In general, I would say they haven't. Um, the students I have remind me a lot of the students that I sat next to in class and, and me in class. 
So I don't really actually think, you know, we talk about this a lot as faculty, mm -hmm. all these lazy students today and, and all the crappy <laughs> stuff they're doing and all the stuff we don't like. And, and every time I, my colleagues and I are talking about that, I, I look at it and I think, okay, I've definitely always had some students that are using practices I wish they wouldn't, right? They have habits I wish they didn't have. But it was the same way when I was in school. It was definitely the same way when I started. There's a little bit more distraction, and I imagine that's going to get worse over yeah. time, which is to say, back in the day, I remember a lot more students, not just in my class, but when I was a student, looking bored or falling asleep or just kind of, I always call it air filing in jewelry, instead of like leaning up on your bench and really paying attention to what you're doing and really focusing on, you know, refining a surface, they're just kind of laying back in their <laughs> chair, almost like they're doing their nails or something, <laughs> just screwing off. And there was, there was an amount of that. Now, those students who are kind of, let's say, lazy or just not engaged, now they're on their phones. Yeah. Now, I wouldn't say it's because of their phones, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, some superficial aspects have changed, yeah. but I don't think that students have really changed the that much. Students at yeah, I, it seems to me like they haven't changed very much. Well, it's probably the, just the age group, too. I mean, you're still, right. like you were saying, you needed that discipline when you were that age. Sure, yeah, yeah so. right. Yeah, when, when I think about, when I, when I look at my number of students, so let's say I have 10 students, Let's say I imagine that I'm that I'm in the position of the best student in that class, right? Whoever that is, and then if I were to look at the rest of that person's peers from their point of view, to the extent that I'm able to do that, I remind it reminds me a lot of when I was in school, which is to say, there's almost a bell curve yeah. of of let's not even say quality, let's just say engagement level. There are people who are incredibly engaged, almost to the point where you think they're going to burn out. And there are people who almost never show up to class. And there's some variation um, hmm. right in between, you know, going all the way up, right? And the goal is, of course, to get them as engaged as possible. That doesn't necessarily guarantee success in any of the ways we might measure it. But it at least, it at least makes it possible, you know, to succeed. So, so as an educator, um, what is the value of a design degree. I, th I think that's something I've been really thinking about a lot, especially now with so many, you know, you could do anything and call yourself a designer um, or an sure. artist. Yeah, that's interesting. What is the value of, of a design degree? I think it depends a, a little bit on what discipline of design you go through, a little bit on what school you go to, but it much more than either of those two things. It's the value is almost entirely at the level of the individual student. It's what a particular person gets out of it that is valuable. I, you know, when, when a, a student and their parents come and talk to me about metals and jewelry design as a, as a major at Kendall, but then also mm -hmm. as a discipline that they might go into and what are its adjacencies that they could go into that aren't necessarily metals and jewelry design, I'm usually pretty honest with them about the types of work that I've seen people do coming out of a degree like this. And some of those outcomes are, are really great and desirable, and some of them are less desirable. But truth is that it depends a lot on who that student is and what experience they have over the next four plus years. Mm -hmm. So I think there's an aspect of critical thinking in art and design that is very similar to every other baccalaureate degree, which is to say, biggest difference to me isn't the difference between an English major and an art major, or certainly not between a painting major and an industrial design major. The difference to me is somebody who has a college education and somebody who doesn't. Mm -hmm. Somebody who has an art and design degree, hopefully, if they've paid any attention to their general education courses and, and really engaged as many of the subjects that they've been forced to take as possible, mm -hmm. they have a more nuanced way of looking at the world. Absolutely. 
I was just talking about this with one of the students the other day about how dumb I feel after I read a new book, no matter what the subject of that book is, which is part of what you learn in your education is how little you actually know. And that gets worse and worse the more you read and the, and the broader you read, you realize how much of the world you don't yet understand. Yeah. And that's really depressing sometimes, but most of the time I feel like that's actually, that's actually what we are up to here is yeah. trying to provoke, trying to give them an amount of information, you know, mm -hmm. but mostly we are not doing it to them. You guys are the, the students are the ones who are going to be acquiring the education partially through our direct provocation and partially based on synthesizing the experiences that they have within the education and from life in a way that transforms them utterly from who they would have been without it. And I don't mean to say that I think somebody with a college education is better than somebody without, but they're different, right? Yeah. In general, they're different. Mm -hmm. And I think there is usually, again, if things go well, or at least in, in an idealized state, there's a way of approaching every problem that is more... I, nuance is such a weird word to use there, but that is more informed about the number of possibilities. So if you get design specific from that liberal arts, um, you know, kind of, or that general baccalaureate, you know, degree level, because that might include science, not necessarily liberal arts. So when I think about art and design specifically, I think about a number of things. One, do you have a discipline? Right, and this is one of the things that yeah. we're pretty good at at Kendall, which is high disciplinarity, mm -hmm. high amounts of um, technical skills and workplace-oriented skills, almost, in, especially in the past, to the level of being vocational yeah, in nature. I agree. So I think there's that. That's one frame of it that I think is important. Is when my students come out of jewelry, they have a, a rudimentary st set of stone-setting skills of understanding about jewelry proportions and materials, of processes, of historical traditions, you know, all these things mm -hmm. that are kind of just, they're not quite rote, but they are just acquiring a body of knowledge that we all share. So there's that. Uh, there's also, again, adjacency, which I think is really important. Um, what are the things that are at all like jewelry or that maybe are unlike jewelry that you can bring in and integrate into the jewelry or jewelry-like work that you're doing? Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons that I have our students work pretty closely with industrial design. So we share a number of classes. Wow. And I think that's important because I think jewelers are industrial designers. They're mm -hmm. just very narrow industrial designers. Yeah. They are more specific and in-depth in one facet of industrial design. Mm -hmm. Fashion, I would say the same thing, right? Fashion yeah. is a type of industrial design, which is to say there's an industry called mm -hmm. fashion and designers are designing within it. Mm -hmm. Where my students, what my students have that's different is they're not generalists um, as much as an industrial designer or as a, especially collaborative designer, which is the most general that yeah, you know, I'm aware great. of because it's kind of ab super abstract. Mm -hmm. So when I think of you know, kind of what students get out of it. Um, some of it is understanding how jewelry fits into the overall schema or scheme of kind of art and design. And then of course, on the, on the human level, how it fits into culture. And that's yeah. something that is one of my favorite things to talk about. I don't know if the students really like talking about it, no, but I important. make them talk about it on a regular basis, which, which is, first of all, why are you making what you're making? But more importantly, why are people ever wearing the kinds of things that we are making, right? What's yeah. the point of this work in culture? Mm -hmm. Especially if they buy my idea that it is not functional, right? That it yeah. is primarily symbolic in nature. What is the symbol 
Um, you know, especially, you know, you can imagine we have a number of students who come through and want to do really high end fine jewelry. So lots and lots of expensive materials, lots and lots of labor and in a form that's maybe really timeless or something. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about rich people baubles, right? Yeah. So, um, if that's what you want to do, what do you know about those people, right? What do you know about their interests? What do you know about their existing collections, right? Mm -hmm. So I want them to be thinking about that, sometimes to subvert it, but most of the time so that they can leverage some knowledge of that context or benchmark in order to not just keep repeating that crap, but, it's not all crap, but I'm saying that stuff, but to make some contribution to it. Yeah, that's have intention. Yeah, Yeah, right, yeah. Absolutely. No, mm-hmm. but that, that was great. Um, thanks for sitting down with us. Yeah, of but course. we should do a quick plug uh, for... Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so Phil has a great book out there called Crafting Air. I just started it. And uh, you got to see some of his stuff. It's There's many times I walked into the Flex Lab and I'm like, what is he working on? What is that? <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. What is that gooey? Right. <laughs> you know, you got to... Yeah, I can't even, I don't, how would you describe your work? I guess really quick. Um, I mean, it's, it's pretty experimental. It's pretty fluid in nature in terms of its aesthetic. I, I used to kind of love to think about it as being pretty lickable looking jewelry. <laughs> like it's always very slick and painted yeah. and plastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so, um, you know, my website is, is philrenato.com or craftingerror.com is the same thing or renato.design. It doesn't matter. There's all kinds of ways to get to do it. But there is this book that I wrote on my sabbatical a couple of years ago called Crafting Error. It's free to download. So if you go to that website, there's a PDF you can download. You can also get um, a version of it in iBooks that is just text because mm-hmm. it's a little bit hard to read because there's so many images in it yeah. with text overlaying them. And then of course you can order. But you got to pa- see the images. You can order a paper version of it through Blurb. Um, so yeah. Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Excited. Thanks so much for yeah, coming. Yeah. Of course. Out. It was great. It was Thank a really you. good time. All Thanks. right. Thanks All guys right. for listening. Yep.